Welcome to issue 14 of Scout and Birdie. Back to Basics. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So we chose Back to Basics for this issue because it's kind of spring cleaning time, a time to recalibrate, check in with ourselves, and refocus after the winter. I know it's still kind of winter here for us in Chicago. It doesn't really feel like it's spring yet, but technically it is. Technically it is spring, and it has been for a little bit. I'm wearing sneakers today, and um, which is, you know, momentous. It feels pretty good to break out the light coats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually been doing some spring cleaning um, since Passover's coming up, you know, getting rid of, like, bread, but also looking through my closet as well and getting rid of a lot of stuff that just feels like really tired and like full of like winter gloom. And yeah, I think we kind of intuitively do that at this time of year anyway, because across the board, I've heard people like recalibrating their diets, recalibrating their closets, or like checking in with themselves and um, just seeing what they want in this switch of seasons yeah it's like not that far since new year's but it feels like a a sort of rebirth Mm -hmm. kind of happening around this time because the seasons sort of force you to think about winter was rough or or not ideal and who do I want to be coming into this season yeah we're a quarter of the way in so (laughs) it may it's strange to think that that happens just like that but Yeah, so we have some really wonderful pieces to share with you. For Back to Basics, the artists really explored what is important to them and how to stay true to yourself when life gets away from you or you feel displaced. So it was really an interesting one. Yeah, it's a great issue and we're so excited to take you into it. Yeah, so please enjoy Back to Basics. First up in the issue, we have Eileen Tull. And you'll remember Eileen from almost a year ago in our Roots issue. Yeah. We're so excited to have Eileen back again with her piece, The Crypt. I'm wandering around what used to be the grand gardens of a palace and are now simply grand gardens. I'm feeling a strange sense of peace, a feeling which eludes me quite often. Crows caw caw loudly as they do all throughout Paris. The trees are January bare, which makes them look like perfectly constructed skeletons. Historical statues line the paths and intricate fountains lay dormant but still exquisite. This isn't Versailles, that's where I was yesterday. I'm on day 10 of my first solo trip, my first European experience, my first time to Paris, my favorite place in the world, even though I'd never been there. Day 10 out of four, because my trip had been unexpectedly extended when my airline turned out to be overbooked, understaffed, and utterly incompetent. My return flight was canceled as I stood at the gate, and by the time I got to a telephone to rebook, there was nothing for another week and a half. 
While this seems quite a magical predicament, in the moment the logistics and chaos of the situation caused my anxiety to flare up into an inferno. I FaceTimed my sleeping mother in Ohio and cried into the screen. What's wrong, she asked, holding the phone up to her ear even though we were in a video chat. I can't get a flight out for ten more days, I sobbed. Okay. Okay, she said, still waking up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday. What do I do, I cried. Well, I think... Eileen, I think you have to just go enjoy yourself, she replied. Enjoy myself? The concept is foreign to me. Well, not exactly foreign, but as a recovering addict and alcoholic, letting myself feel joy is a difficult negotiation. Historically, the things that make me feel joy also lead to destruction of property, of glassware, and of healthy relationships. They lead me to terrible places. It was always gradual. The evening doesn't start with broken couches and screaming matches. I always enjoyed myself in the beginning. It is hard for me to trust myself to choose what is good for me. My pleasure receptors don't have the best track record. So when I find myself enjoying something, when I find myself feeling happy, when I start to feel magic in the pit of my stomach, my recovery walls fly up nervously. I often wonder if this is a first few years of recovery reaction or if this is how I have to feel forever, looking at happiness from the other side of the wall, just in case, force field. I know you feel anxious, my mother's ear says to me. And yes, you can feel anxious, but then you have to enjoy yourself. But you can be sad and complain when you get home, so said the wisest person I've ever met. And so I did. I tried to quiet my mind and put my anxiety aside for a few goddamn minutes so I could just have a nice time because I had been gifted an extra week and a half in Paris. I tried to focus on the present, the immediate, the beauty and splendor in front of me. There was plenty of it. My addict voice and my loneliness would try to stick on me, but I brushed them off as I looked on all the art I'd ever loved, ate delicious food, explored historical sites, and enjoyed the city I'd wanted to stand in since I was a child. I tried to let myself enjoy things. So I'm traipsing through the gardens and breathing in the brisk, cold air. This is where I want to be old, I think. When I'm an old woman and I've lived my whole life, whether I have anybody else with me or not, I'll come to Paris and really live here. And I smile to myself at the image of old Eileen slowly walking through these gardens, thinking about how young Eileen did the same thing when she was trapped in Paris for those two weeks so many years ago. And I smile. And then I wander further still, heading east or north. It's hard to tell without Lake Michigan always there. But I'm drawn to a tall, grand building with pillars. I do always love a tall, grand building with pillars. I walk closer and closer and discover that I'm in front of the Pantheon, a site that wasn't at the top of my must-visit places in Paris, but now that I have all this extra time, I might as well try to walk into every museum in the city. I spend my time in the Pantheon, straining my neck, looking up at the incredible ceiling and murals and statues. 
I cautiously venture down to the crypt where only the finest heroes of French history and culture rest. I weep in front of Victor Hugo's tomb. I weep in front of Marie Curie's tomb. I weep at the foot of Voltaire's tomb, that brilliant rat bastard. I walk through the halls of the crypt solemnly with respect, but I also feel joy. To be in the company of these incredible minds, to be in Paris, I'm really in Paris. I smile in the crypt of the Pantheon and I think about old Eileen again. And then I catch my breath. I find a cold bench to sit down on. It dawns on me. I've never imagined myself old before. I've never seen old Eileen. I've never dreamed for her or planned for her. Because truly, up until now, I never thought I'd have to. See, even before I knew I was an addict, I knew my brain was wrong. I've known that it doesn't quite work the way everyone else's does. This world was not made for people like me. People with such a complicated cocktail, pun intended, of mental health issues. We weren't built to last. I've always assumed that I would die young and tragically, and whether I would have a hand in bringing that about, I don't know. I've never been quite ready to think about that part. I try to keep a wall between me and a lot of things. Force field. I'd never gotten to see old Eileen before. But there we both were, in the crypt of the Pantheon, in honest-to-God Paris, living in a dream, but I'd never felt more grounded. Amidst all the beauty of the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre and the palaces and the art and the music and the air thick with magic, I am most grateful for those moments on a cold stone bench, gazing out at the future I'd never allowed myself to dream of. Next up in the issue, we have Caroline Watson. And I met Caroline through a show that we did together recently with the group The Living Room, which is a solo performance ensemble. And she is a wonderful performer, and we're so glad to have her on Scout and Birdie. So, so glad. She's so lovely. So we hope you enjoy her piece, Midwestern Sad Boy. of street gray snow singing a folk punk song. You are a half-cleaned Logan Square apartment. You are a half-moved into Rogers Park apartment. You are the old-style tall boy tattooed to your forearm. You are the yellow line to Skokie to do laundry at your mother's house. You are holding hands inside my coat pocket and mistaking it for romance. 
your passive-aggressive niceties and a slouchy beanie. You are a shaky L-track covering a Sufjan Stevens song. You are Chicago in March. You are snow on spring break. You are disappointing. All the Midwestern sad boys own that Chance the Rapper hat, but never wear it in public. All the Midwestern sad boys are in a band, maybe the same band, all rat-a-tat-tatting to the beats of their own sad Midwestern hearts. All the Midwestern sad boys struggle to find my clit more than they struggle to find a seat on the red line at eight in the morning. All the Midwestern sad boys have semen that tastes like malort. Cause all the Midwestern sad boys are vegetarians who drink too much and don't eat enough fruit. All the Midwestern sad boys move to Chicago from Wisconsin, Deanna, Ohio, Soda. Cause they were too interesting for their hometowns. Now all the Midwestern sad boys have to go back to their hometowns just to feel interesting again. All the Midwestern sad boys are an easy lay. They enter me, but really it's more like I'm entering them. I'm painfully aware of all of their crevices, mostly just because they aren't that deep. They fuck me from behind, but really it's more like I'm not there at all. I'm a hole into which they're projecting their sadness, dumping their malort cum and their opinions about Hemingway into me like I asked for it. All the Midwestern sad boys want to marry me after the second date. Want to move into me, want to make me their permanent address, want to set up their Xbox and their shitty leather couch inside my intestines, want to curl up and sleep inside my left ventricle cause I'm not from here. I'm from somewhere warmer, Somewhere where we don't romanticize sadness. Somewhere where we learn to hide it. So, all the Midwestern sad boys think I'm happy. Think I can fix them. Think I'm their mom now. Think I'm better than them. I'm not better than them. I'm just done with them. All right, we're here with Maddie Marzen, who is sharing with us her song, Little Things. Welcome, Maddie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here with us. <laughs> it's lovely to have you. So Maddie, we were talking before the interview about this theme, Back to Basics, and mm -hmm. you were saying that you have um, this song, Little Things, has a pretty strong connection to that mm -hmm. theme for you. Can yeah. you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so back to basics to me, it related the concept of back to your roots, finding what initially inspired you towards something. And with this song, I pretty much solely use the oboe aside from guitar and voice. And oboe is what is in my roots and that's what I learn when I basically learn how to play music. So to me, this song feels very, very much back to the basics, back to the oboe. <laughs> it's very cool. The oboe is such a, an interesting instrument. There's so much breath to it. It seems like a, like a mm -hmm. good one to get into all of the others. Yeah, it really helps with singing. Yeah. And it helps with breast support and just using air in the proper place. They really connect. Did using the oboe for this song influence the lyrics that went into writing this song? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. The lyrics definitely came first. But the oboe is just such a natural and longing instrument that I thought it really connected well and fluidly. And this was the first song you experimented with looping, right? Yeah, yeah, the first song. That's why it's only three chords for five minutes. So that's another way that's back to the basics. Um, yeah, so I was messing around with the loop pedal and recorded these three chords over and over again. Kind of inspired by Karen O's solo album, which I don't know where she recorded it, but it sounded like it was self-recorded and just very lo-fi toned down with that bright guitar sound. And so I was experimenting with that sound and then used the oboe to just build and build and build and create this layer of sound that eventually just created its own direction. So thinking about um, the lyrics to this song, mm -hmm. you said that you thought of those before the oboe came into it. Yeah. And how did you find the inspiration or what was the starting point for writing this song? For writing this song? Well, the song is about my partner and he's long distance. Um, so it just flowed pretty naturally. Um, I try not to write about love too much because I feel like it's sappy. <laughs> but for this, I was like, you know what? I'm going to embrace it. I'm just going to do it. And so that's where that came from. And it's also the lyrics with the chords are very repetitive. So to me, it feels like the driving force of the song is the oboe and it's the melodies that are introduced and then repeated and then layered with harmony. And to me, that's what... Um, that's how the song speaks. Mm. Mainly also lyrics, they can be so vulnerable when you're writing lyrics, and especially about someone. Um, that's why I try to stay away from love songs. <laughs> what kind of things are you most drawn to then, other than love, of course, in mm -hmm. your writing? Well, that's a good question too. Um, things around me, things in my life, but things in other people's lives and just everyday inspiration. I like to take a concept and then just run with it. Lately I've been writing with a group, Maddie, Dave, Jerry, and <laughs> and with that we write, we write separately, we write the lyrics separately, but with that I like to do more broad concepts, like write about a short story or write about, I mean sometimes I write about gibberish to be honest, like I'll take a word like apple tree and be like, wow, I really like that concept. And then just kind of take bits of writing here and there that I've done in notebooks and piece them together. Do you find, secret. Do you find <laughs> that the 
music sort of inspires the lyrics or the lyrics because you were talking about how the oboe in this song Mm -hmm. and little things is sort of more your focus in the song than Mm -hmm. the lyrics Mm -hmm. and that's from the other um, musical artists that we've talked to that's not always the case and Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to think that maybe the music is influencing the lyrics rather than the lyrics influencing the music yeah for sure and for me sometimes I write placeholder lyrics and things that sound good with the contour and then edit it and change it based on the flow of the song mm. and and also editing it to make sure it makes sense as a story for some lyrics make sure it's growing and going somewhere and not just gibberish <laughs> it's really interesting to think about you maybe have the feeling of what you want the song to be before mm-hmm. you have the context of the lyrics which right. is very beautiful because your music does seem to be like one of those things you can close your eyes and really just sit back and feel with mm-hmm. it so yeah which is nice and little things it's kind of a drone song because it's five minutes with a lot of the same notes but um but yeah it is about capturing that feeling and I really wanted to capture this feeling of missing someone and feeling of longing and having these tones that are so repetitive just trying to drill in that concept and also I was stuck in the same key because when you loop things you can't really (laughs) change keys too fluidly (laughs) I mean you can but then you have to stop and start it and I have not nailed that down (laughs) it's very interesting (laughs) like just like the technology to it yeah it's very like oh yes we are forced to keep the the simplicity of it, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I'll accidentally like stop it, and then the music all stops, and I'm in a show, and I'm like, oh shoot, <laughs> there's no sound. <laughs> Everything just left. That's the magic of performing live. Yeah. <laughs> Could happen at any minute. Yeah. Uh, speaking of performing, um, mm-hmm. do you perform often in the Chicago scene? You know, I. Yes and no. Um, I am trying to get more into DIY shows. Um, I teach right now. I teach at School of Rock, and I'm forming this program with a friend of mine. And we want to perform for kids and perform like kid-friendly interactive shows. So with that, it's more in the suburbs. Um, we just played like a little bookstore show the other day, and we're gonna try to go to libraries and more public places. But then with Maddie, Dave, Jerry, we try to find whatever dive bar we can to perform. So that's completely different. That's not kid-friendly. It could be, could be, but not, that's not what we're going for with that. <laughs> Little kids at a dive bar. Yeah. <laughs> Just rocking out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've had a student before that was like, oh, yeah, I'll go to your show. I've been to that bar before, and she's like nine. Like, no, you haven't. <laughs> she wanted to. I like the enthusiasm. It's cool to think about how you can use a public space like a library and just transform mm-hmm. it and make it that kind of enriching environment yes. for them. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I love like building shows in a space where that's not what they do. That's not like that's not the environment. But then you, then I also love when it works and it flows really well and the environment really works. Like being surrounded by books. And I have this one song called rutabaga and it's about noticing your surroundings and um, personally it's about this um, picture in my uncle's kitchen and it was a picture my sister drew of a rutabaga and he had it up his entire life basically in his kitchen and so I told the kids the concept of actually at this point there were no kids there but that's besides the point 
but I told them this concept of noticing things and then after the song I asked them what they noticed and people had some amazing answers and it really created a discussion in the middle of the show and it flowed really well. That's I think so that's lovely. a really cool concept, the idea of like transforming what we think of as like an actual rock concert or a music concert and mm-hmm. actually having time to discuss things in between and mm-hmm. especially with children to be able to engage in yeah. what that process looks like for an artist and what yeah. goes into it. Yeah, it's something for them to grasp onto. And then we have little hand instruments for them to play along to. That's so sweet. That's very sweet. <laughs> and they, the show, they did pretty well. Yeah, they stayed on the beat. I'm a little worried about having the hand percussion instruments and they're like playing off beat or like going crazy with them and then it's really hard to perform. But I'll deal with that when the time comes. So if we have kids listening to Scout and Birdie or adults who'd like Mm -hmm. to catch you at a future concert or to listen to your stuff, how could they go about doing that? Well, I have a Facebook, Maddie Marson, where I upload everything and... um, Stay updated with shows. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. And everyone, please enjoy Maddie's song, Little Things.
All right, next up in the issue, we have our friend Jorge Silva. And you'll remember Jorge from his video in our messy issue last year called Oblivious. So with that, we're so excited to take you into his piece, La Lucha. There's a narrative structure that exists in video games that, at this point, is a little cliche, but has its place in storytelling. Essentially, a user plays as the main character with all of the powers and abilities capable of said character, only for it to be taken away through some lame narrative element. This structure is usually found in sequels as an uninventive excuse for a player to go through the same type of gameplay that made the original popular. The hope is that the player will relive a presumed enjoyment and that the brief taste of absolute power will eventually serve as motivation after experiencing a systematic betrayal. I know, I know, it also welcomes new players to the most recent entry in the franchise without forcing an unappealing learning curve and yada yada, not the point. The point is, this happened to me, not in a metaphorical sense, not in the context of a video game. I'm talking a couple years ago, when I lost all my abilities, my powers, or at least they changed for a brief time. At 6.05 a.m., Red rubbed my shoulder, trying to gently wake me up. My third alarm of the morning was going off, and she was trying to get me up, not because she was worried about me getting up, so much as she was still half asleep and wanted the noise turned off. Groaning in frustration at nothing else than the unfortunate call of duty that was daily employment, I forced myself to rotate my view 90 degrees. Sitting on the edge of my fully Ikea bed, I noticed the frame of the classic window-style frame shadowed on the wall in a perfect fashion. To make it worse, a titmouse landed on the windowsill. How fairy tale, I thought. I hate fairy tales, and I have no idea what a titmouse looks like. A few minutes later, fully dressed and ready to head to the warehouse, I go to find Red and give her a kiss goodbye. Red, now going through the same existential crisis I just suffered, looks to receive my exit smooch, but she pulls away unexpectedly. Are you okay? She asks. Confused, I respond, yeah, why? I don't know. You seem distant or off or something. Red is sensitive, a little too sensitive if you ask me. I tell her not to worry, essentially asking water not to be wet, and head to the parking lot for my car. It's a crisp morning, so I pull my hoodie over my head and prepare for the crapshoot that is turning on my 2002 Nissan Sentra, potato color. The car takes what feels like an eternity to turn over, and when it does, I speed away. I'm running late, and if there's one thing I dislike more than people pronouncing it bagel, it's tardiness. My racial insecurity makes it so that I always arrive on time. The stereotype of POC folks being late will not be enforced by my doing. I hit Maryland Ave, and I speed around the neighborhood squares in a manner I normally would shun. As I make my way to the final stretch, there's a blur in my rearview mirror. My head whips around to see what is moving around me before stomping on the brake. The light had turned red, and I was about to unknowingly blow it. In the corner of my eye, a whitish vehicle creeps into my sight like it was falling into scene. It was Metro PD, 
Two cops had clearly been looking at me. And there I was, sitting in a black hoodie and a beat-up sedan driving, objectively speaking, recklessly. For those of you who don't get it, it's like if they were a cartoon bull and I was Elmer Fudd's ass painted red. They rolled down the window, and I thought for sure they were going to give me shit. The next few moments are key. Make just enough eye contact. Speak confidently without seeming arrogant. No using urban vernacular, and they will hopefully see a brown man submitting. The window rolls down, and the officers, who all look alike with their mustaches and aviators, look up and down the car. They nod their head and open their mustaches and mouths. Looks like your tire's a little low. I respond, Huh. Yeah. I don't know much about car repair, but I know that that's not something you fix. In retrospect, the correct rhetoric for interactions like these is, Been meaning to take care of that. Careful now. Looks like you're living for the weekend. The officer quips before pulling away. The fuck does that mean? What does it look like to live for the weekend? I try not to think about it too long and make my way to work. I got off lucky. Let's not get caught up in the why too long. They could, after all, come back and realize they forgot to harass me. The warehouse is only occupied by three workers, including myself. So I often go most of the mornings without ever saying a word to someone else. However, when one of us is late, it is noticeable, and I fully expect a solid minute of unnecessary shade. Nick, the Hungarian floor supervisor, sees me walk in, and I tuck my head into my chest. I look up, and he gives me a simple wave before returning to whatever he was angrily scribbling. Huh. Good day so far. After the major inventory work, the FedEx man shows up. Ronnie was new. We had just switched delivery services, and rapport with the driver is important, especially should you ever need a favor. Being the only person of color in the warehouse there is already a solidarity in being amicable. I go to say hello to him as the bay door opens, and what I mean to say is, hey man, what's good? What comes out is entirely different. Hey friendo, good Taylor Swift to you. Ronnie stops and stares at me. I panic and try to talk about all the packages we have for him, but we never recover. I don't understand what happened. What the fuck compelled me to say that nonsensical line? I'm red with embarrassment, and considering how tan I am, getting to say it literally is a rarity. I can't shake it, but the bewilderment doesn't last long. Kyle, the assistant manager, makes his way from the other end of the warehouse. He pops a squat on a few cases that are stacked next to me. He sips his newly made coffee from an old Dunkin' Donuts cup. He starts to tell me about a Keith Urban concert he went to this past weekend. Just thought you'd be interested. He proceeds to invite me to his family's lake house for a, quote, little quail hunting. I don't want to. Also, this is the first time Kyle has ever asked me to do anything other than speak Spanish to the drivers or drink. What brought him to think that I wanted to hear about a Keith Urban concert? I don't know. I mean, I enjoy the occasional Johnny Cash or Waylon Jennings, but Keith Urban was a little much for me, or so I thought. As lunch rolls around, I decide to head to H Street so I can perhaps get away a little bit. I walk into the only joint that has food options for a vegetarian, Whole Foods. For years, I had been in staunch opposition of this corporate food purveyor, 
their arrival signaling to me the coming gentrification of a particular neighborhood. In some cases, their arrival meant it was already too late. However, considering the food desert we were in, it was the only place I could eat where the meal didn't come with a side of guilt and physical pain. I walk into the store and the sea of whiteness hits me. Yoga mats on every shoulder, Starbucks in every hand, a general sense of safety. I look like a Hispanic laborer with big boots and dirty jeans. Wait, wait, that's what I am. Walking quickly to avoid any stairs, I make my way to the buffet. In my haste, I pass by a tall bearded man wearing a bandana. I know that look and it is odd to see it here. He looks like some of the homies I knew back in the day. To recognize our mutual fish out of waterness, I give him the old minority head nod. It is a time-honored tradition to salute your fellow brown person when in a situation like this. With a simple, quick uptick of the chin, one can establish community with a mission statement, as if to say, if anything goes down, I got your back. But after making that appropriate eye contact and giving the nod, he jerks back. His face curls in confusion and disgust. This has never happened before, and I am not sure what to do. It's like, it's like something is wrong. Something is definitely wrong. With a new purpose, I run out of the grocery store and into the street where I begin to hyperventilate. I look for bystanders walking by who might be able to quell this anxiety, but I, I can't even bring myself to make the eye contact and begin the exchange. The cop the mistranslated vernacular, the beer-guzzling co-worker's recent personal interest. And now, something that had so much certainty attached to it quickly ripped away. I have to make sure this is happening and I'm not just letting the leaky ship on my shoulders mislead me. That's what they do in the movies. So, if I can't declare a consistency, then it's all just coincidence. Across the street, there's a department store. Hoodie up, I walk in and in circles at a brisk pace and check behind me to see if anyone's following. Nothing. I call my agent to see if there's any recent acting opportunities that may have popped up. There's some great well-rounded roles that have no particular stereotypes attached to them and totally appreciate your talents, she tells me. Shit, that's not what I usually hear. I see a different cop and ask to try on his hat. He even takes a picture of me in it. This is bad. In a cobblestone alley, there's a man taking out the trash from a restaurant. He's a relatively short man with a little goatee wearing a hat that has an Italian soccer league club logo. I interrupt the jolly melody he is whistling. Hola, I say in the shittiest accent. See? It won't come out. I know what I want to say in English, but I can't find the words in Spanish. The man stares at me and points to the street, presumably instructing me on where to go. With no other recourse but to end the interaction with a grassy ass, I slink away. First, I couldn't code switch, and now I've lost an entire language. That was it. That was a confirmation I needed. I lost my brown. Like a heroin addict going through withdrawal in a Danny Boyle movie, I sweat and begin to lose control of my bodily functions. I sit on the stoop of a nearby boutique where I fully hope to get accused of loitering. Instead, 
the owner comes out and gives me what is objectively a lovely cup of tea and even offers to call a loved one on my behalf. <sighs> Time to get past the denial and start working on solutions. But it's not like I can just go to anyone with this problem and sound like a sane person. Any human interaction feels dangerous at this point. My wokeness came from being brown and developed over several years. It's a distinct possibility that if I talk to someone trusted, I could destroy that relationship with a sudden, uncontrollable, insensitive verbiage. It's like ignorance Tourette's. See? That right there, that's what I'm talking about. Putting this on anyone seems wrong, said my immigrant sensibilities. Luckily hadn't lost those, I think. What is the catalyst, I asked myself, thinking that if I trace the cause of the problem, I can perhaps concoct a panacea. To be honest, I never did find out the root cause of the problem. To this day, I can only speculate how these unfortunate circumstances came to be. Maybe this is just what happens when you live in D.C. too long. I tried kale for the first time recently, and it leaves you maybe as bad as it tastes. The water. The water is contaminated. Can't start down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. Nope, too late. The water has a chemical that makes POC folks docile and compliant. Who is responsible for this? Mitt Romney, obviously. Or perhaps there is a god, and he or she or they is upset with me because I am comfortable. Damn you, Catholicism. How did I get brown to begin with? A pivotal question in the mostly nonsensical panic. You may be born with some of the attributes, systematic oppression, inherited traumas, non-Anglo features, but the rest is something I learned over time, even the language. What if I just have to relearn everything? After I realized the boutique whose stoop I was occupying specialized in handmade cat hats, I decided to make moves. Night had fallen and the 8th Street regulars were out and about. Freed from my prolonged petrification, the long walk home across the Northeast sector began. It turns out there wasn't really a solution other than walking. The walk lasted a year and a half. If I had not been in a proper city, it would have taken longer. The entire time was spent redoing the first 20-something years of my life and retracing the steps taken to reach Chicano Nirvana. My childhood on the south side. My years as the big fish. Prep school culture shock. That time I came out to my friends as Hispanic. Militant student in college who just took his first sociology class phase. The faux nihilist, a.k.a. my early 20s, and responsible adult Jorge. By the time the walk ended, I was back in Chicago. Home. How phantasmagoric, I thought. The journey helped me to reacquaint myself with the idea that the Latinx communities are made up of several identities. Queer identities, Afro-Latin identities, indigenous identities, progressive identities, not so progressive identities, families, individuals, a shared experience of colonialism. I relearned to say X instead of ask. That one was bullied out of me, I think. I relearned to cry. The antiquated machismo-based culture didn't allow that before. Still doesn't, really. The bread smells sweeter. The hugs are longer. Even the language is richer. My American accent has mutated into an acceptable amalgam of regional Spanishes that forced the question, yo, where are you from? I was browner than ever. 
but new and improved like Danny Trejo when he went mainstream. There was certainly a time when walking into a barbershop surrounded by homies produced a certain anxiety of not being brown enough to be in that space. That trepidation had dissipated, replaced by an appreciation for the mutual interest that can only happen over a fade and a shave. My brown is still imperfect, but Latinidad in general isn't perfect. I'm reminded of that every time I'm referred to as George by other Latinx folks. It is a piece of the centuries-old conditioning that made assimilation a goal, a conditioning that changed many Josés into Joseph, so many Marias into Marys. Red looks at me now knowing that something is different, that the man who she went to bed with a little over a year and a half ago never returned doesn't seem to bother her. Perfectly content, she keeps watch, wondering what happens next. I was on edge for a while, wondering if this new Jorge would last or if it all could drop out at some point. That I can't explain what happened in D.C. causes me to believe that it could happen again at any point unexpectedly. That anxiety has quelled and settled into a calm preparedness. If it happens again, I'll know that the other end will produce something greater. It should be noted that the days since have also had a certain flavor of desperation, but it comes with the territory. It has even manifested into a type of pride. It gives meaning when I mention the struggle, la lucha. All right, next up we have Phyllis Porsche. And I met Phyllis at our friend Ada Chang's live lit show called Pour One Out. And Phyllis is a wonderful performer, and we're glad to have her on Scout and Birdie. Yeah, so we're so excited to take you into her piece, It's Only Hair. Hair is a big deal. I've had every hairstyle that a black woman can have and still have hair on her head. Hot combed, afro, relaxed, jerry curl, extensions, back to the afro, and dreadlocks. I've had so many different hairstyles that for at least five years, I didn't match my driver's license picture. In 2004, I underwent some dramatic changes. I had gastric bypass surgery and lost 80 pounds. I got my first tattoo and I made a commitment to my hair and got dreadlocks. Early on, it was rough. Although my natural hair was long, when the stylist twisted it to make my locks, it was shorter by about two thirds, and I realized my biggest fear. I looked like that motherfucker from the Little Rascals. But as time went on, my hair grew and grew and grew. Had I let it alone as I should've, I would be able to sit on it now. However, in 2014, I went through what I'll call an existential crisis. It was an inharmonic convergence of a bad term teaching, a weekend of pissing away my paycheck on bullshit, thank God for the bailout from the First National Bank of Big Sister, and feeling lost and empty all the time. What do most people do when things don't go their way? Well, some drink, some take drugs, some try to fuck their problems away, 
And some just say fuck it and fall asleep. Me? I do something ridiculously drastic to my hair. I used to be a spur-of-the-moment kind of girl. You know, if a friend came up with something that sounded like fun, like driving to the Dairy Queen in Indiana with a couple of guys we just met, or something fun and risky, like driving to the Dairy Queen in Indiana with a couple of guys we just met, I was down. Looking back, I realize I'm lucky I made it through my 20s without ending up face down in a shallow grave. Now, when I think about making a change, I take my time. I ponder it. I write about it in my journal. I propose it to my trusted inner circle, and I query my electronic mentors, Dr. Google, and at that time, Curly Nikki, Naturality, Carol's Daughter, and a site that sold something called the Naughty Boy Dreadlock Removal Kit. I watched hours of YouTube videos that showed how to take my locks down without losing most of my hair in the process and ways to style my newly acquired tresses. The idea was to untangle my locks and just wear my hair long and natural, so I ordered the Naughty Boy kit and waited until the weekend, just in case anything went wrong, so I'd have a couple of days to fix it. Friday night, I got home and washed my hair with a shampoo from the kit. I saturated one lock with the removal lotion, sat on the side of my bed, and with the pointed end of a rat tail comb, worked it through my lock. Two hours, some extreme shoulder fatigue, and a small ball of hair later, I had unraveled an inch and a half of hair. I was tired, frustrated, and felt even more hopeless than I had before. And that's when I realized it would take about a month for me to undo a quarter of my hair, nights, weekends, holidays, and days off included. I went into the bathroom and took a long, serious look at myself and my hair. It was well past my shoulders. And in my fantasy, had I been able to undo it, I would have looked like Diana Ross, full and curly, you know, the kind of carefree hair that everybody wants but few people have. Then I focused on that inch and a half of loose wavy hair that brushed against my right cheek, and I knew what I had to do. You think I'm going to say I cut that loose part off and went about my business, right? Oh, no, fam. That would have been much too easy. I went back into the bedroom, found the scissors, grabbed a handful of locks. I had about two inches of new growth, cut them off, and released the breath I hadn't realized I'd been holding. What remained stuck out like wires desperately reaching out to be connected to something. Immediately, my head felt lighter, lopsided even. And I said aloud, damn girl, you are in this shit now. And I went back into the bathroom, methodically snipped off all my locks and tossed them into the toilet. Why the toilet? I don't know. I guess if I just put them in the garbage, I might have been tempted to take them out and try to glue them back on. The toilet was the portal of no retrieval. Think about it. If you drop a quarter in the toilet, even in the one at home, you would think twice before sticking your hand in there, right? Or is it just me? Anyway, I stared at my reflection and teeny parted afro, my head so light it seemed unattached, glanced down at the toilet bowl full of what looked like amputated tarantula legs, then got back in the shower and washed the ineffective goo out of my hair. I was relieved that my hair hadn't stayed separated like it had been because that would have been fucked up. Like most people I know, I had about a hundred bucks worth of partially used makeup and hair products in the bathroom vanity. So I dug through and found the half-used bottle of Kiehl's Creme or Cream with Silk Groom. 
It smelled fantastic and tightly curled my hair. When I looked in the mirror, my mother looked back at me and I was exuberant. That Monday, I walked into work to a gaggle of wide eyes, open mouths, and a chorus of, oh my God, you cut your hair. I had done it. I had chopped off my locks, given myself a new look, a new attitude, and a new me. Or so I thought. Like most quick fixes, the newness didn't last long. I had gone from normal, carefree, let it rain hair that I didn't have to comb to hair that had to be slathered with even more expensive goo and styled every day. It was a pain in the summer, but I endured it. In the winter, I had to go outside with wet hair or worse, put on a hat that crushed my curls. And that's when I realized the enormity of my mistake. Plus, all that renewed I feel so good inside had been quickly replaced with the same old dread that I had before. It was just wrapped in a different package. A package that required more attention, money, time, and care than I ever wanted to put toward most things, least of all my hair. I thought chopping off my hair was returning to ground zero. Rebirth, a fresh start. It was anything but. I still felt empty and I had the added burden of styling my hair every day. A year later, I was scheduled for hip replacement surgery and I rationalized to everyone around me that I needed to relock my hair, that lying around the house for two months and being only partially mobile, I wouldn't be able to do much with it. That time, I didn't have to consult Dr. Google or anybody else. I knew what I was doing. It was the right thing. Yeah, I had cut off 10 years of hair in an attempt to find something, and what I realized was I hadn't lost anything. I just buried it. I used to color my hair because I thought the gray made me look old. The truth is, I am old. Older than the goofy 22-year-old who made hideously bad decisions. And old is good when you consider the alternative. In 2016, for my birthday, I stopped coloring my gray. If I really wanted to start over, really wanted to connect to the me that I thought I had lost, I had to let her come through. Gray hair, titanium hips, and all. Add to that a weekly therapy appointment, a handful of antidepressants, and a no-interest payback arrangement at the First National Bank of Big Sister, and I am truly renewed. Next up in the digital issue, if you're following along on scoutandbirdie.com, is Liam O'Connor. And Liam is with us this time, um, showcasing their piece, Shemaim, which means there are waters in Hebrew. And the piece is a video installation that takes place or is being projected onto a frame um, that is held up by tons and tons of sand. And the piece shows a divide between ocean and sky, similar to the quote from Genesis, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and let there be a separation between water and water. And in Hebrew, the word shemaim is the word for sky and heaven, and it sort of breaks apart to form two words, which is sham, which means there, and then maim, which means water. So their piece sort of shows like the duality of those two things and harkens back to Brayshit or Genesis and it's a wonderful piece. Yeah, it's really wonderful. So please be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check it out. 
And next up in the podcast portion of the issue is Jacoby Cochran. And I met Jacoby through the Living Room show um, that I mentioned earlier. And Jacoby is a sweetheart who has such a talent for comedic timing and interaction with with the audience. Mm -hmm. And we're so glad to have Jacoby on for the first time on Scout and Birdie. Yeah. So please enjoy Jacoby's piece, Lost in Translation. I was standing in this elevator for what felt like five fucking minutes. Combined with the actual five minutes I spent waiting on the motherfucker, I probably should have walked in retrospect. Uh, But considering the two double Jack and Cokes I was holding, I didn't really feel like walking the four flights of stairs to my room. And to be honest, I didn't have much to complain about. I was enjoying a much-needed vacation with one of my absolute best friends in the world. We had just gotten back from this wonderful steak dinner, complimented by this beautiful Mendozan red. It was like 2010, 2011, none too fancy. And the sweet sounds of Gustavo Cerati serenading us in the background. As I exited the elevator and rounded the hallway to my room, I wondered to myself, how much of this drink could I get down before I had to take my keys out to open the door? Fortunately, I didn't have to stop chugging because the door was semi-propped open. Unfortunately, on the other side of the door, I found my best friend laying on the floor, clutching her abdomen in agonizing pain, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of her life. How did I know this? Well, because I'm now standing in the doorway, lips steeled to the cup with this dumbass look on my face as she screams to me from the ground, Kobe, I am in agonizing pain, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of my life. I immediately rushed to her side, setting down the filled drink. Rather than exert some false control over the situation, I calmly asked, B. Would you like me to pick you up and put you in the bed? To which she replied, please, please, please don't fucking touch me. So I didn't. I don't know why I actually asked the second question, but it kind of just word vomited out of my face when I looked at her and said, "Uh, would you like me to get you a warm towel for your forehead? To which she replied with perfect Comedic timing, might I add. Sure, Uh, but bring me two. I looked back at her, two? She said, yeah, one for my forehead and one for my uterus. Because that's what I need right now. I didn't laugh. I didn't ask if I should laugh. I just walked to the bathroom and started preparing two warm towels. Honestly, I wish my second question was... B, do you have any tampons, Midol, or alternative forms of pain relief I can get for you? Uh, But uh, due to a conversation we had just had uh, a couple hours earlier over dinner, you know, the steak dinner with the the nice Mendoza and Reds, like 2010, 2011, nothing fancy. Uh, She told me that since moving to a new place a year earlier, her menstrual cycle had been particularly rough. 
Uh, and though she was PMSing and it was going to start soon, she didn't actually have any tampons, Midol, or alternative forms of pain relief, and we would take care of that in the morning. But as I returned from the bathroom with the two warm towels, we both realized we were probably going to have to do something about that right now. Uh, so we simultaneously suggested that I go downstairs and ask the woman at the front counter if she had anything that would help. Um, so I walked out of the room somehow picking up the drink off of the counter and walked right past the slowest elevator I've ever encountered down the four flights of stairs where I arrived at the front desk. Um, without any clumsiness or shyness, I walked up to the young woman and explained Good evening. Uh, my best friend is upstairs in our room, laying on the floor, clutching her abdomen in agonizing pain, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of her life. And I've been sent down here to ask you if you have any tampons, Midol, or alternative forms of... And before I could finish asking, her face turned sour, and she unfortunately responded that she didn't have anything that could help, but a little over a half mile away, there was a pharmacy that was about 24 hours, she believed, and they should have exactly what I needed. I wondered if I should go upstairs and tell my friend I was gonna leave out, but I decided that I'd be fine. So I walk out of the building, and as the door closes behind me, all I can hear is, Buenos noches, senor from the man sitting at the security desk. And at that moment, my internal voice cuts through the bottle of Mendozan Red, the two double Jack and Cokes, and I'm reminded I'm not on the south side of Chicago. No, 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 no. I am on the south side of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I don't speak much Spanish, as you can probably tell from my shitty pronunciation of Buenos Aires. And though I had been in South America for a little over a week and a half, having visited Santiago, Luan de Cuyo, Mendoza, I had actually never gone out by myself. And if you've ever been to South America, from the moment you get there, everyone you encounter is telling you the exact same thing. Don't go outside by yourself especially at night. But over my last week and a half, I had encountered some of the kindest, sweetest, most beautiful people I had ever met. People who were willing to stop and help you with directions, help you a little extra with translation. So I figured I should be fine. I began walking towards the pharmacy and as I approached the building uh, a few blocks later, I realized that it wasn't 24 hours. No, the La Farmacia had closed already. And now I'm standing outside of the gate, realizing I'm completely unprepared. I was thinking I was prepared to ask for tampons, Midol, or alternative forms of pain relief, but now I'm standing between what looks like a soundproof glass and the pharmacist who's clearly sitting at the desk rounding up for the day. And now I'm standing here beating on the glass pantomiming, sir, my best friend is back in our hostel and 
he can't understand anything I'm saying. So somehow I think my gesture should be louder, like my voice. And now I'm standing on the sidewalk screaming. And she's in our hostel, bleeding in agonizing pain, having arguably the worst period of her life. Now he's just waving me to leave from in front of his store. And I can't blame him. Put yourself in his shoes. I'm standing on the sidewalk, beating on the glass window of a pharmacy at almost 11 o'clock at night. So rather than stand there and look like I'm begging for drugs to this poor pharmacist, I decide to walk off and stop making a scene in the middle of the night. Uh, I keep walking, trying to retrace my steps from earlier in the day. I look at my phone, which is practically dead at this point, and I walk a few blocks later, and I end up at a, a small little bodega. I walk inside. Unfortunately, the man behind the counter doesn't speak English, so I respond with one of the few phrases I do know. Mi español es muy mal, which means my Spanish is really fucked up. Uh, he told me that mis inglés es muy mal. I began looking around the store for something, and he could tell that I couldn't find it, so he waved to a group of guys who were standing outside the store. Uh, to see if any of them spoke English. One of them said he spoke a little English, so I walked up to him. And again, I've been in South America for a week and a half. The people I have encountered have been sweet and been kind and willing to stop. And this man genuinely looked like he wanted to help. So I explained, sir, uh, my best friend is back in our hostel, and she's laying on the floor in agonizing pain, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of her life. And before I can finish my sentence, the clear concern on his face had transitioned into disgust. And now he's talking to the guys around him in Spanish. And of course, I don't understand anything they're saying. And it's a mixture of laughter and disgust. And they're pointing at the genitalia and pointing back at me, apparently saying to one another that I'm having my period. I don't think they understand how this works. And again, rather than stand on the sidewalk and commit a scene, I decide to walk off. Uh, at this point, my phone is actually dead, and I'm feeling a little more defeated. Uh, I walk a few blocks away from the bodega when I'm stopped by a whistle behind me. I turn around, and the woman is dressed in the brightest clothes I've ever seen that are somehow simultaneously sucking up and reflecting back all of the light in a two-mile radius. She speaks a little bit of English. I know this because she asks if I have a lighter. Of course I have a lighter. So I reach in my pocket and I hand it to her. As she lights a cigarette and solicits me for a good evening, I say, no. Unfortunately, I'm not having a great evening. And she asks me why. At this point, I've repeated the story multiple times. So I tell her, you know, my best friend is back in the hostel and she's laying on the floor. And my night doesn't even compare because she is in agonizing pain, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of her life. And I'm out here running around like a fucking chicken with my head cut off. And she stops me. And she tells me she knows a place not too far from where we're standing that'll have exactly what I'm looking for. To sweeten the pot, she gives me directions back to my hostel. So I'm thanking her profusely, gracias, gracias, running towards the small shop. And when I get there, of course, the man behind the counter doesn't speak much English. Uh, 
mi español es muy mal, mis ingles es muy mal. I began walking around the store looking for the items and I look over the old man's shoulder and I see one of the things I have been looking for all night. A box of tampones. I immediately walk to the counter excited, trying to point out to the man the box of tampones. He sees it but doesn't see it and I'm also trying to gesture for pain relief. And at that moment, he looks over my shoulder and gestures to someone standing outside. I don't turn my head. But he begins to yell out, Policia, policia. Like I said, I am from the south side of Chicago. I don't speak much Spanish, but it doesn't take a linguist to know what policia means. And like that exact moment when I was standing in the doorway, my body froze. Yeah, for the last week and a half, I have encountered some sweet and kind people. But I couldn't help but think that this police officer has probably gotten a call about a linebacker-sized black man running around Buenos Aires, screaming about a woman laying on the ground in his hotel room, bleeding in agonizing pain. I slowly turn around towards the officer who can see clearly that I'm nervous, approaches me and asks how my evening is going. For the umpteenth time, I explain with even more focus on the detail, officer, my best friend is currently alone in our hostel, laying on the floor, bleeding, having arguably the worst period of her life, and all I need is a box of tampones, some pain relief, and I will be on my way. The officer explains to the man behind the counter exactly what I need. He grabs the items and places them on the store counter. I reach into the, my pocket and grab my debit card as the officer bids me a good night. And at that moment, the store counter's face uh, turns sour. Kind of like the young woman at the front desk. And he shakes his head that they're not taking debit anymore. And I, nor he has enough pesos to pay for the items. So I, I leave the store and I honestly, I can't registered the disappointment because at this point I am overcome thinking about my friend who is now there in pain adding worry to her list of problems as I'm out here running around now on my way back to the hotel empty-handed. I walk in the front door and the man at the security desk greets me. 
Buenos noches, senor. I respond, and the woman behind the counter enthusiastically greets me, wondering if I accomplished what I set out for. Empty-handed, I sullenly respond, no. I begin explaining to her the night of chaos, the uh, 24-hour pharmacy that turned out to not be a 24-hour pharmacy. Um, I thanked her graciously for even helping me. To begin with, I told her about the bodega where I didn't have enough money, and at this point she starts reaching in her pocket, and she pulls out just enough pesos for me to pay for the items back at the store, and she tells me to hurry. So I run back past the security counter where the man screams to me, Buenas noches, senor. I run back to the small store where I greet the shop owner. I pay for the items, and I turn around, running back towards the hostel. I get back in, thanking both the security officer and the lady behind the front desk. I dart up the four flights of stairs past the slowest elevator in South America, where I get to the front door of my room, exhausted, and I find my friend... in the exact same place I left her, laying on the floor, clutching her abdomen in agonizing pain. I immediately make my way to her side, setting down the bag of items, and I calmly ask, B, uh, would you like me to pick you up and put you in the bed? To which she replied, uh, please, 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 just lay here with me for a second. So I did. And she said, tell me a story. <laughs> uh, and rather than dwell over the chaos of the night, I simply asked her if she remembered a moment back in college when I came over to her apartment after just breaking up with my girlfriend for a few minutes, and I laid on her floor and I just cried. And how she laid there with me. And I asked her if she remembered a year earlier before she moved to South America, if she remembered when I came over to her apartment and we just laid on her floor and talked about what we were gonna do without each other for a year. And how I told her how much her friendship meant to me and how strong she was and courageous she was for moving halfway around the world to work in a girl's home. I looked at her as she laid there on the floor and I said, te amo mi amiga. And she looked back at me and said, uh, te amo, mi amigo. And then she said something in Spanish I didn't understand, but luckily she translated for me. She said, help me up off the floor. I need to change my panties now.
that's it for the issue. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you'd like to stay connected with us in between issues, make sure to go on to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and follow and like us. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Liam O'Connor's art installation, Shamaim. You can also learn more about where to keep up with all of the artists and read their bios and check out past issues. If you would like to submit to a future issue of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com, click on the submissions tab, and send us your stuff. We'll see you next time with issue 15, Sisters. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel, and we're going to play you out with another song by Madeline Marzen called Dino Song. Bye! Bye!